Today's guest is Ali Berger. Ali is the founder and CEO of ETA, a game-changing tech company that is redefining the future of fashion to benefit people and the planet. What I enjoyed about our conversation is Ali's passion. You can tell that she's committed to not just the story, but to creating an impact. In this episode, we talk about her background in journalism, an unconventional entry into consulting, and how ETA aims to reduce pollution in the fashion industry. She's a fervent advocate for empowering young women globally and is involved in a variety of organizations where she uses technology, leadership, and sports as vehicles to drive change. So get ready as we dive into an enlightening conversation. Ali, thank you so much. This is awesome to have you. Welcome to Now and Next. How are you? Evan, thank you for having me. I am doing really well. Thank you. How are you? I'm awesome. I'm awesome. We had a great little pre-intro conversation, so I'm feeling great. I feel like you're feeling great too. Let's explore who Ali is. So please introduce yourself. Tell us who is Ali? What does she care about? And what is she trying to accomplish in the world? Yeah. Well, for those listening pre-conversation or pre-official conversation, poor Evan had to listen to me ask a trillion questions. Um, that has to do a little bit with my background. So for context, I feel like Evan's got, I've gotten to know a lot about Evan and poor Evan's like, you're a complete stranger walking into this. Nah, no, no, this, is, this, is, <laughs> this is exactly the vibe that I'm looking for. So it's going to be a fun time. I love it. I love it. So yeah. Um, who is Ali? That's a great question. Sometimes, some days I ask myself that same question still as a founder, which I feel like is a huge part of what we'll talk about today, never ending growth. Uh, but I uh, have had a very interesting journey to get to this point. So I actually currently today, I'm the founder and CEO of a company called ETA that stands for Earthlings Taking to Action. Uh, but it's been a long and winding road to get here. And it's something that I love talking about all the time that uh, I think so many people think right when you graduate from college and move into your first job and whatever you majored in is the thing that you have to do. And yet I think I've been a, a living testament to the fact that actually following your passions and building a lot of awesome and valuable skills to the market along the way is really the secret. It's not one destination, but kind of that lifelong journey. So I started as a sports reporter and producer, actually. Um, so I started working when I was 16. I knew always that I wanted to work. Everyone in my family, all the women in my family always worked. Um, and so I started doing, and I always loved messing around with video and editing. So I started doing that stuff when I was like 11, 12. Um, and every new tech that would come out playing around with it and seeing how to mess with audio and video and motion graphics and all those kinds of fun things. I was never really big into the gamer community, although I can appreciate all the production that it goes in, that goes into it. Um, and how to build those audiences. Um, but yeah, so from there, um, I went to Oregon for undergrad and I was a, a sports reporter and producer for NBC Sports. Um, so I started right at the beginning of my sophomore year. So I had kind of already known I wanted to move into that world of things. So while I was in school um, as a full-time student, I was also traveling across the Pacific Northwest, um, covering all of the local college teams, professional teams, um, all different sports and uh, had to wear a lot of hats. So traditionally in the TV world, you think, okay, there's, you know, you picture a production room and there's a bunch of people sitting there and they each have a job. And then there's the on-air cam, the talent and the camera people. And the industry was kind of moving in a different wave. In the I started school in 2011 in college. Um, it was moving towards much more of let's take a team that might produce a show that's 10 people and consolidate it into one person that's doing all the jobs. So they called it kind of like multimedia journalism is, is one of the, the 
big terms for it, but I actually learned that I love that space because you got to be super scrappy and do all the jobs. And so um, that was kind of the inspiration behind, wow, I like really fast paced and moving, fast moving environments. And then from there, I actually made the decision um, to, so I graduated early and I spoke Spanish growing up. Um, at home we learned and then, or in school we learned, um, my dad speaks Spanish. So um, that coincides with kind of my first opportunity out of college. So I knew that dream, the ESPN was kind of always my dream company. And um, I had studied abroad in Spain my senior year of college at the beginning. And when I graduated, I graduated uh, a little bit early and I took a job. I thought it was going to be a job with Sports Center LA and they actually changed the title of the job like the day before or the the role that they were going to have me interview for the day before. And so they changed the name of the manager I was interviewing with. And the second question was in Spanish. And I was like, and thank God it just started kind of coming out. Um, so after college, I took the, I took my first like full-time adult non-school job uh, working at ESPN international um, on all of their international promotions and properties. Um, so where the, the production team meets all of the major partnership teams, whether that's NBA, NFL, MLB, and how, um, how those properties are showcased around the world to all different audiences. And then the stories that you have to tell to try to get audiences and, other parts of the world interested in something that might not be happening in their neck of the woods. Um, and how do you, how do you adjust those narratives and storylines accordingly um, with a human centered lens? I think, I know you're super passionate about human centered everything. And so am I, I think that that's the, the critical component uh, to everything that I do, no matter what I do, that rings true as we're going through the story. Um, and so from there, I made the decision um to go, I knew I'd always wanted to go to Northwestern for grad school. They have an incredible sports journalism program. And a lot of my idols had gone there. And so I got into that program, um, made the decision to leave LA uh, and head towards the cold for the first time living in it all the time in Chicago. And um, called up my old friends at NBC and said, hey, I'm moving. I think that you know, I'm happy to play around in the sandbox. I think there's a lot of exciting stuff happening here. Uh, for context, I moved to Chicago in August of the Cubs World Series run. Uh, so it was a great time. Um, I like to say I've gotten really lucky with everywhere that I've lived and all the opportunities have kind of been like part of the the pop culture zeitgeist a little bit, like football at Oregon, then baseball at, at with the Cubs. And then um, when I graduated, I got a job um, – with in market three, which in the TV world is a big deal, but it was for $40,000 a year. And I was like, okay. Oh my God, I, this is less than I made as a production assistant straight out of school. How am I going to pay my bills? This isn't for some context too. I'd seen a bunch of layoffs at ESPN. I would experienced people around me getting laid off in my third month in corporate America. And was like, I, I kind of at that point already had known that I was way more interested in where the business world as a whole was heading than day-to-day -day content creation itself. And so I actually made the decision to go through consulting recruitment after grad school graduation at Northwestern, um, knowing full well that I had, I knew no, I didn't even know what consulting was before I took that job. I was 24 at the time. And I think that's kind of how it happens for a lot of people who end up yeah. working in consulting. I just knew that I loved entertainment, but I wanted to explore a bunch of other things because I thought I wanted to be this one thing since I was like 
for as long as I could remember. And now all of a sudden it's like, wait, I'm I'm in my early 20s and I have a lot more years in my career and now I have no clue what to do. And it was the best decision ever. Um, I, for me, I knew that because I knew that I wanted to be able to play in a lot of different spaces. And so right away, um, I liked Accenture because it was like, okay, you can do the strategy all the way through to the tech negotiation of partnerships and how that all comes to life and plays out and how it's maintained. So you see that full circle moment within a company. Um, And I figured as as long as I'm here, I might as well kind of experience all that I can. Um, Is this, is this the right direction? I'm just kind of rambling on on here. No, you are not rambling. This is absolutely the right direction. So please keep going if there's more. Beautiful. Yeah. So um, from there, I kind of already knew that I was really interested in definitely where emerging tech was going, coming from the media world. We'd heard so much about AI was coming. And I know now that's like a hot button. I, uh, you know, that's like the key buzzword right now. But this has been obviously a very long evolving space that I think a lot of people just haven't woken up to compared to those of us who've been living in it day in, day out for a long time now. Um, And so I was really interested in that space and all of the emerging tech um, but what was fascinating was at the time that I joined Accenture, they actually weren't were not even considering my major coming out of grad school to take a role as an analyst at Accenture. They only wanted okay. like engineering students, econ students, oh. computer science, um, all those kinds of focus areas, mathematics. And uh, so coming from a journalism communications background, yes, I had a master of science. And I focused on a lot of the data analytics stuff in sports. So I knew I loved that space and I loved playing in that space, but I hadn't had that traditional background. So I actually had to fight my way into even getting an interview. Um, I had to go to the university and say, hey, I think that my skill set actually has a lot of value to this industry. And here's why you should allow me to at least even interview for any of these companies. Sure enough, I was getting offers at every single one because they were like, oh, my God, this is so different than the last 25 kids that we talked to who all had the same types of answers. Um, Just at how you approach a problem, right? Lots of different diverse mindsets in a room makes for a way better team. And so um, funny enough, that differentiation actually opened up a ton of opportunity. And so from there, um, initially they were like, oh, you know how to write at Accenture, you know how to write and talk to people and you're not shy and, you know, you can put things into messaging for different audiences and you already understand how to do that. And so right away, I um, took an opportunity underneath the chief of, of staff for Accenture Interactive Global because I was sitting in the Chicago office at the time and yeah. where most of Accenture's leadership sits for many people who don't know or their U.S.-based leadership and or a lot of it. And um, and so that was an incredible opportunity because it was this time where they just bought this brand new building. They were trying in Chicago, they were trying to figure out how to make an innovation lab and what they were going to showcase and um, how they were going to sell this new transition to clients from. We don't just care about traditional ways of doing business, but now we're going to fuse in more design elements. We're going to add in the perspective of the human, which coming from a journalism background, I was like, what do you mean we're adding it right now? Like that's the foundation of everything I've ever done before. And we're talking about, oh my God, oh my God, we're talking about caring about people. Like it's like, uh, like the hottest trend since sliced bread. And yet we've all been people the whole time. So it was, it was a wild set of perspectives to come in with compared to if you've grown up in this uh, clear path 
of grooming towards these types of opportunities and how to problem solve that same consistent way. And so um, then, right, pretty much instantaneously, like a month and a half into Accenture, I was asked about writing for or doing research for Fjord Trends or Accenture's business design. Now, what are Accenture's business design and innovation trends? And so I got on a call with the the CEO of Fjord and they had just been kind of getting moved into Accenture in a more broad capacity globally. And I was so nervous. I was like, I'm I'm a brand new analyst. I've never even been on a client facing project yet. And they wow. and they're asking me like, Oh my God. And they're like, Ali, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? What do you think about consumer behavior preferences here? What do you think about businesses moving in this way? And I started answering questions. And have you ever caught yourself where you're like, I don't know why I know this, but like, I just, this is all kind of clicking to me. And I feel like I'm, yeah, the most at home in my brain that I've ever felt. And what a blessing. It's like this, like, like, I finally feel like I'm finding like this There's feels right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's so, awesome. and then, um, so I just kind of followed that wave and followed my gut and wherever my interests were. And I kept learning more and more about, or was way more interested in all of these backdoor conversations that were happening at a lot of our clients to build out these products and services that fast forward, we're now starting to see get rolled out in the AI space years later. But all of these major ethical dilemmas. Um, that there weren't a lot of people who seemed to be caring about what we were just talking about prior to this call, the implications of how this impacts human beings and our jobs and the way that we move through the world and live, learn, work, play, love, all the things that we do as an individual. And, and to just look at it as this binary set of systems that you're building, um, it was really clear that there needed to be much more work in those conversations, in those client conversations, and that there was a huge opportunity from a de design perspective. So at that time, getting staffed on projects or as a business designer, I was a, that's what I that's the work that I ended up moving into at Accenture. So for those of you who don't know, business design is like. Um, we walk in and the client says, we have this massive white space and we're doing this thing over here and it's losing money and we're not going to be able to grow. And now we need to find a new way to grow and be able to retain our talent and make a new name for ourselves in a new potential sector with a new type of customer. And how the heck do we, where do we start and how do we do that? So my favorite thing, I like to say like sculpting, you know, like taking a piece of clay and kind of like molding it, but then also on top of that, taking the external elements of the world and figuring out how to best work with the world and the internal nature of the being to form this solution around it. I'm speaking a little bit ethereally and at this point, but, um, and so I found this massive passion there. Um, we worked on a lot of projects this that I think we'll probably get into. Um, but that was kind of the first time ever in my life that I was like, I think that maybe building something myself might be really cool. And I tapped back into that piece of like, um, we were talking about before multimedia journalism, where you're doing, you're wearing all the hats and doing everything to come in into corporate America, where you only do a piece of something on a team and you pass it off. And seeing how in that process of passing off, so much context gets lost. 
in a in the big shuffle of a big corporation and the bureaucracy that comes with that that i i felt this need in a big machine to kind of start to address like okay i see this like scrappy element that i love that i this hustle that i know is in me plus all of these big picture ideas and how do i marry those two things together into a life that might be fulfilling or you know is closer to some kind of personal fulfillment um, and that's how we got to here. So that was a long-winded answer to now I'm a startup founder, which we can talk about all about what that means. But yeah. yeah. That that was not long-winded. That was perfectly winded. That was awesome. <laughs> I I I love your unconventional non-linear start to consulting. I will I want to spend a minute there because I feel myself being in consulting and, and knowing of others who are um, early in their consulting careers and, and wondering what do I do and, and just having conversations. It's great to hear how you also did not have a conventional path, but still were able to be successful in that space, still, still was able to deliver value to senior leadership and your colleagues and your clients. Um, so the thing that is really cool that I got from that is you don't need to follow everything by the book, step-by-step, step, linearly. Like having an unconventional different path actually can be a benefit to the consulting world or to any other big business traditional world because you're coming in with a different mindset. You're coming in with a different set of experiences that will allow you to stand out, allow you to bring a different set of ideas to the table that might make things run differently, operate differently, and ultimately achieve a different result than if everyone thought the same way, had the same experience, and provided the same type of inputs and ideas. So thank you for sharing that. That, that was wonderful. Um, let's talk about Eta. Am I pronouncing that right? Eta or Eta, your company? Eta, like a huge like name, Eta James. Eta James. What? Okay, who I should I know who Eta James is? I'm sorry if I don't. Who is Eta James? No, it's a musician. Um, I can send you some stuff offline, but that's the closest like celebrity that had that as a first name, so it's easy for people to kind of rally around, I guess. Awesome. And you said it's it's um, the acronym Earthlings. That Earthlings taking to action. Earthlings taking to action. Why and how? How did you come up with this acronym? Great question. Well, first, what do you think of it? It's <laughs> awesome. Like- Earthlings. The, the, the fact that it starts with Earthlings is like, what? I don't know. Maybe that's the nerd in me coming out. But I was like, this cute, cool human and like kind of using the term Earthling. I don't know. It's it's kind of like sometimes there's weird words where you're like, I kind of like this word. I don't know why. Earthlings is is, is one of them. <laughs> I Thank loved you. it. Thank you. Thank you. So um, wait, was your question, how did I get to this name? Yeah. Or why? Yeah, how- how and why? I'm curious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Great question. So actually, res- probably might resonate with you, um, considering that you're currently in consulting world. But I got so tired of... Let me backtrack for a second. So in, in the consulting world, everybody's goal isn't to design for the good of people on the planet all the time, right? You're It's a client-facing industry. You design what clients... You co-create with clients oftentimes. A lot of the time they'll give you a little bit of direction and they'll come back with something that might, you know, give you a lot of room to play with versus sometimes the constraints are constraints are really small. And so your ability to be creative and how you problem solve becomes much more narrow. Um, and I'm open to both of those environments 
However, one of the biggest things that I kept feeling project to project as a consultant was not feeling, witnessing flat out was that um, we were brought in constantly for design work uh, in order to build human center. That's a, we're going to talk about a lot of buzzwords that make me feel a little bit sick to my stomach because they're so misused, but human centered design, or like I, um, we called it a center a couple of years ago, lifestyle centered design. So this con- that's one that I'm really excited by. So yeah. it's called lifestyle center. Now it's called human centered design. Okay. Okay. No, no, no. It was called human centered design. Then a couple of years oh. ago, I think it was like the 2020 trends, which ended up like being a bust because COVID happened anyway. Um, okay. That year, there was a trend that we came out with called lifestyle centered design. And so that was a concept from the design world that I was super passionate about, much bigger in places like Japan and Europe than here, ironically. But um, this concept of taking the so in human centered design we talk about how the human is the center but that's kind of the end of it right and then the business operates around that in lifestyle centered design we're taking that concept and we're zooming it out even further to talk about the the set of parameters it, the environment with which with within which we all live so really when you think about it you can talk about how to build something that's good for people or for businesses and the goal is to have it be good for both right but it if you're building a solution that's utilizing resources that we know, or there's only so many of on this planet that will make you successful for the next five years, but 10 years from now, your business might not be able to exist anymore. Or you're, what your operations are doing is so significantly impacting the quality of life for people that you're actually helping the demise. And so your business hence has a finite date because we know that we're only going to be able to survive on this planet for so long. That's a little bit of like a super doomsday abstract view of it. Honestly, some days based on the data, it's very realistic, not doomsday, but um, this, this concept of um, how are we not taking into account the place, the planet on which we live and the vehicle by which we're going through our lives to determine how to build anything that we're building. If we're just basing it purely on what's good for the business. And a lot of the time, those things are nebulous. What we're not talking about is the fact that the business survives within the ecosystem of the world. It's not vice versa. Um, And so I'm not answering your question about the name, but it's kind of the backstory behind the types of ways that we were solving problems and that many people today are solving problems to design products and services and saying, hey, there's a massive hole here. And based on all the data that we're seeing, if we build products that are actually good for people and the planet, in addition to being incredibly or having huge opportunity for profitability and growth long term, then maybe that's something that we not only should explore, we have to give ourselves the opportunity to explore long-term in order to be competitive. And, um, and so Earthlings taking to action for me came from this frustration of feeling that I was consistently seeing the human and the environmental elements of all of these solutions that we were building that the client had asked for out of the solution by the time that it made it to market. Because Many of these solutions, I learned the human and the environmental pieces were getting considered because there was a directive from the board or there was upset by the public to take a look at or solve for some major grievance with how a given business was addressing people or the planet or treating people on the planet through their operations and strategy. And um, just understanding that that can't that can't continue that way. And also, why are you asking us to come in and do all this work? And I'm spending my life and giving up nights and weekends and all of that only to have us start back at square one. And you got to tell your investors that you checked a box and looked at the problem, but never actually did anything about it. 
that was the moment where I had a little bit of that internal dilemma of, do I like where my, what I'm using my brain for? It's funny this past weekend, I'm going on a lot of tangents here, but I promise they're all going to come back. This is part of the story. This is awesome. I love it. I love it. So, um, I was just with my cousins this last weekend. They have a nine-year-old and I was teaching her. She has a Google Chromebook in school and I was teaching her how to inspect and we edited a movie this weekend. And so it's fun. It's amazing to watch like little kids learn these skills, but it's also fascinating because human nature allows us to use a lot of these skills for good, bad, or otherwise, no matter like that comes from internal, that's a human element of you and how you choose to use the skills that you have. And so similar to like Star Wars and using the force for good, we we had to have that conversation of like, it's great that you know how to use this now, but if you're going to use it, two things, no matter what we teach you, it has to be used for good. And you, ha- if you're teaching others, you have to share with them in a light that is for good too. Um, and so it's kind of back to the same inspiration of why I moved in the path that I moved or why we named the company that the way that we named it showing that I I like to say that we get up every day to do good for people on the planet through technology. And that's kind of, I think what makes me happy or my driving force in life. And so my goal with the company and the name of the company was really to focus on what's the underlying element in, in this divisive environment that we live in now um, and, and divided. What is the underlying element that we all have that is rings true? And we're all citizens of this planet. So to me, earthlings seemed like the most realistic way to care about it because without just saying human, but incorporating the environment within it too. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And and how are you doing that at EDUF? How are you doing good for the world? Great question. So today, um, little known fact by many, but the fashion industry is actually the third largest polluting industry in the world. So I got this idea um, because I was asked to be on a fashion client right before I was supposed to take my sabbatical. And it was my first fashion client, funny enough. And we were brought in to solve one of the biggest brand names in the world. We were brought in to solve Uh, or help look at their environmental impact because they'd made commitments to the Paris Climate Agreement and were nowhere close to being on track to meet any of those goals. But they publicly signed off on all these international documents and put it out there as part of their brand to all of their consumers. And this is a trend across the whole industry right now. Most of these folks have said, okay, by 2025, we're going to hit these metrics. And by 2030, we're going to hit these metrics. But hey, we have no plan to get there. And the plans that we are choosing to tackle are only like one iota of impact towards this way bigger goal that we have. So there's this pressure that all these businesses are feeling right now for whoa, what do we, what can we do today to be able to get anywhere close to following through on these commitments to the public. Um, And on top of that, there's all of these uh, regulations that are starting to come out around waste. So the reason that I bring this up is, like I said, the fashion industry is the third largest polluter in the world. What many people can't fathom is that that's more than all land there. The fashion industry is more polluting than all land and sea travel combined. So we talk about how, yeah, so we talk about how driving electric cars is going to change, you know, save the planet when really impact wise, that's a drop in the bucket compared to if we shopped just a little bit smarter. And so my goal was as somebody who cares about this planet and as a, a, 
a passionate uh, participant on this planet, utilizing resources day in and day out, that I, my goal was to use my powers for good and find a way to have a little bit or make a, make an impact in a way that doesn't significantly change the way that people live their lives every day, but that is an add a positive add on that has a huge potential to decrease carbon emissions. And so that's where the shopping industry came in. When you think about all of the shipping back and forth and you might want to buy two shirts on Amazon and then return one knowing full well, you're not going to keep both. But whereas you might go into one store, grab a couple items, put them all on your body. And then what you don't like, they just put back out on the floor. Obviously it's a little bit different when you have to ship it back and forth, not to mention where that lives. And then Um, What most people don't know is that 80% of clothes that are made every year go straight to landfill. And so most of what we return to all go straight to landfill because it's more costly to put all of that product back into the brand's ecosystem than it is to just say whatever and forget about it and let's dump it. Um, There's businesses that are buying land in um, during the pandemic. We saw like Madewell is a great example. They bought land in North Carolina where they said, we're getting so many returns. We can't even process them all. So let's just buy some land in a rural area and take and just dump all these clothes in massive heaps. But we own the land. So it's okay. But a lot of brands don't care about that part, right? Like we're seeing in Africa, for example, companies are going in droves, just dropping off all of their clothes with no permits, no anything, and are leaving it on locals and all these other communities internationally to figure out what to do with all of this waste. Um, So that was, there's lots there, but with Etta, what my goal was, was to help people shop a little bit smarter and reduce some of that impact Um, And so we can talk about what the solution looks like and all of that. But I wanted to speak specifically to the impact piece you asked for. So or asked about. So, for example, um, with Etta, we've designed the product to be able to address a one point two five trillion dollar market, just like we talked about huge financial opportunity combined with positive impact for people and the planet. So. All of that combined results in that massive opportunity um, that allows us to to build a solution utilizing AI to address the problem. I'd love to hear more about the solution because, you know, sometimes I might buy a couple items and then I try not to return. But, you know, I've I've got long arms and long legs. Like sometimes it just doesn't work out great. And I would love a solution that, you know, had my measurements and would say, you know what, Evan, this might like. Your chest, it would look great, but your arms just, it won't fit with this design or whatever, something. Um, so I feel like a solution like that would solve that problem for me and other people who, who want to, you know, be eco-friendly in their, in their intentions, but also still want the convenience of shopping online. Um, so yeah, like, what, what is the solution that you, that you have in mind? <laughs> how does it work? Great question, yeah. <laughs> isn't it? Um, so how Etta works uh, is, so you do two photos in front of your phone. We take more measurements and we can talk about that element from a human-centered design perspective later. Um, so two photos, we take more measurements of your body than a tailor to generate what we call your light body. So think of it as your body single sign-on, your digital twin that can travel with you across all different platforms, brands, retailers, realities, so on and so forth. So that's the long-term vision. How that, how that actualizes today is with those two photos, 
Um, it unlocks with your light body. It unlocks your personalized shopping portal. So with those two photos, we then match you to the internet where we've cured. So we have a personalized shopping portal where we've curated over a hundred premium and luxury ready to wear brands all in one feed designed to fit your body. And so, um, instead of going from site to site, trying to guess what size you are at Nordstrom versus Adidas or Nike, or comparing between brands with these little like fit finder things, which yeah. are don't make sense because most of these brands work with hundreds of manufacturers. So you're basically comparing apples to oranges constantly. This allows you to, it just makes it all really simple. No guess and check left. So we say, Hey, Evan, scan in, here's your portal. You can slice and dice similar to how you would scroll through like a normal shopping feed or like a Nordstrom traditional retailer. So by color and size and brand and all of that kind of stuff, but with a 99.5% accuracy that whatever you're seeing on your feed is already going to fit your body. Um, wow. And so that, that takes out all that guess and check all of the let's buy two and we'll return one. Um, all of the, Oh my God, I have 500 packages from Amazon in my closet that I've yet to return. And now it's too late and I have to keep the stuff I'm never going to wear. Um, so you get the idea, I think. But the wow. beauty of that is that, so that's just the consumer aspect, right? We're B2B to C. So um, the reason that I bring that up is because all of this, what all of this is doing is we are in the process of building the world's largest repository of human body shape data. So anonymized human body shape data. So not only can we say, hey, Evan, you now can shop seamlessly across the internet and it's all designed just to fit your body. But we can say, hey, brands and retailers, you know, all these body or so let me start with 80% of people do not fit into the traditional six ish buckets of how we segment bodies um, for sizing. So mm -hmm. the, the, tr the sizing that we use today has largely gone di undisrupted since the late 1800s, which is 1800s. crazy. Yeah. Wow. Which is crazy to think about. Yeah. There's a lot of aspects to the fashion industry that um, from a technological standpoint are very far behind and um, a data. Yeah. A little bit obsolete from a data perspective still. And so it makes that industry super ripe for disruption, obviously. And there's lots of areas to become much more efficient. So one of those aspects is with ETA we're launching. So with that repository of body data, we're launching um, the backend analytics platform, which allows brands, uh, designers, merchandisers, forecasters to better understand the body types that they're trying to sell to and, and that thus use that information to inform how clothes are shaped um, and designed for certain kinds of audiences. So for example, say that your brand is um, is wanting to sell or sells in LA and New York, like they're, you know, LA, New York, Chicago, Miami are their biggest cities and they target typically Gen Z consumers, but now they want to grow into the Gen Z market in Japan. The average body type in the US is super different than the average body type in Japan. And yet today there's not a whole lot of nuanced information for brands to understand how they need to change how this garment is cut in the US for the US market versus the, Jap the Japanese market. Um, and that can be, so that's like an international example. We could take that all the way down to like, the average body type in LA is not the same as someone who lives in Cheyenne, Wyoming, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, so you can think about all the different ways that data can be used here. Um, mm -hmm. But those are kind of elements of the whole picture. And feel free, we can jump into whichever aspects you'd like. Yeah, I mean, there's a human centered aspect. But first, you spoke about pictures. 
and people's bodies and things like that. How how are you approaching data privacy, data security? What about the blockchain? Is that something you're exploring? Um, can you share more about your current practices or what you hope to implement in the future? Absolutely, I can. Yeah, so for me, data and privacy are two of the biggest aspects of this from the beginning. And so we've been super, super thoughtful and intentional coming from a human-centered design perspective or a lifestyle-centered design perspective, bringing on the right sets of experts early and often to make sure that every single piece, every single piece of the decision-making process is taking into account how people will, might feel about the process and also how they're protected. Um, and so to your point, we brought in um, security advisors really early. We brought in tech advisors who'd played in that space a lot, um, especially in the digital space. I like to say that this is kind of the last, your physical body is really your last piece of data that you that many of us are holding on to and, and yet will be critical for us to move from a purely physical and digital separated, segregated ecosystem, which doesn't even really exist anymore, to what we have now, this much more digital model of how we move through our lives and how the interoperability of those two realities together. Um, and so uh, from in terms of on-chain technologies, that's definitely something we've explored a lot of. I think the term blockchain is interesting. I'm noticing that a lot of people are moving specifically more towards on-chain as the the terminology yeah, purely yeah. because um, blockchain unfortunately has had like a lot of the the crypto aspects um, flavoring the perspectives on the term. So we have looked at some on-chain technologies, quite honestly, until we get to the point where we we're starting with at a my phone is over there, so I can't reach it, but I usually hold up my phone at this point. And um, we start, we're starting with mobile, obviously, since that's where the bulk of consumers are. But as we both know, um, I'm hesitant to use the term metaverse, but these, these uh, interconnected virtual spaces or AR, VR spaces, I think are obviously the next frontier for experiential design and at, at mass scale. But I think we have been really mindful about saying where can there's so much lip service to that whole industry and where things are going. And that is obviously the future. And we're super excited about it. And we're building our technical infrastructure to be able to scale across realities very quickly. But that's not to discredit the fact that today most consumers are living in a mobile world. And yeah. so I think while we have been, we've made sure that we've kept the door open from a systems architecture standpoint to be able to address all of these different nuances to how we live, learn, work, and play and where we do that over time. One of the big things is that we don't want to double down on any one system too quickly or any one solution provider too quickly because it's still such a new space with lots of new players entering and exiting the market constantly that I think we have taken the approach rather than I know there's a lot of folks that have taken the approach of let's just go straight to the metaverse and focus there. That's a super volatile market still. And like we just saw with one of the big digital fashion events, like they had half the attendance that they had last year because yeah, less people fashion week or something. Yeah. yeah, or not Digital Fashion Week, but um, a, a couple other events around that okay. universe. The stats okay. just came out about attendance. And and there's all these folks in that space that are saying, what the heck? Why is this? And to me, it's a no-brainer. I went to, a because an example would be, I went to an NFT event uh, for NFT NYC um, in New York two weeks ago. Every single person in the room when I looked around was over the age of 40. Really? Um, every single one. Yeah, except for one other person in the room besides me. And 
when I was standing in line, there were young people that were in line that were like, we're not going to this. This is stupid. Like literally knew what the event was and thought it was like a joke that the, like the, the generational disconnect in how you viewed the technology. And that's, I'm speaking to like one person's perspective on it, right? Like I have a lot of different views that change constantly in this space because you have to be flexible with your mindset around it. Um, but, but I have noticed that I don't feel that my peers in the space, like peers around my age are as jazzed about a lot of these tech that are getting talked about as like the next big pie in the sky experiential opportunity because the consumers aren't moving yet. So to me, until they're moving, it doesn't make sense to pick a horse and go with it. Does, if yeah. that makes sense. How important is uh, timing? Tell me more, uh, say more. So you said consumers aren't moving. Are you suggesting that it is probably not the right technology or are you suggesting that it is not the right time but this technology is sound, like uh, on-chain or NFT technologies. Oh, super sound technology. That's not what I'm saying. And I think there's that from an anonymity standpoint and a security and privacy standpoint for us, that on-chain technologies are going to be something that we definitely take a serious look at and will or have been and will continue to do. But yeah, I think from the this the perspective of like, do I think that these are the technologies of, of the future? Of course. Do I think that the current way that the current offerings in the market are the way that mass consumers are going to make the jump. And for that to be the new normal of mass adoption, I think we're not there yet. Um, and I, and that, you know, if you're advising a business on what they're going to do in the next year to two years and how you're setting yourself up for success versus three to five years, that really understanding that mass adoption curve and the fact that you need numbers of audience to serve so that they come back and are interested is something that I'm really looking at, especially because for us, and it depends what your strategy is, right? Like if your strategy is we want to be the, the cool emerging tech, like there's so many cool companies that are doing avatars or interoperable avatars. Ready Player Me is one of them that I love. Like there's, uh, there's so much, op um, I think a lot of these players will stay and will be the mainstream, but I also think that there's like, if there's 50 competitors for an avatar, interoperable avatar right now, everyone isn't going to get to be that for the market. And so it doesn't behoove us to say this is our exclusive partner right now as we move into that space, because our technology is going to be the back end, the digital twin data infrastructure, right? Underneath your physical self and all of your digital avatars. And so when you think about it, it really is to our benefit to stay wide open to the market rather than say like, I think that this is the exact experience that's going to win because if it's been in the market for a year and a half to three years and it's not at mass adoption yet like they might not be the player to do it that's going to do it if that makes sense and maybe they will but um our goal isn't just to be the cool sexy thing for right now and like get some early adopters our value comes from the, the number of people that come to the platform. And so for us, from a business or go-to-market strategy standpoint, it makes the most sense for us to kind of be where people are at in mass and understand how they behave and then be mindful of how they're transitioning to these other technologies to make our next decisions based on that. Got it. Got it. Do you have any last final comments or, or anything you want to share with people about, about what you're building? Yeah, I think that something that we haven't talked about today that's super important is that 97% of people who get funded are males. And 
male founders. 97% of money goes to male founders, which is amazing. And for for all of the people who are benefiting in that space. But I think that there, we're at a really scary place in our world of technology where we've talked about human-centered design and that needing to be paramount, that there needs to be more parity in the decision-making of who's in the room to be able to make the decisions for the future of ourselves and our children and our grandchildren and how this all plays out. Um, and I think that the there have been pockets of people raising their hands in this space for decades now. And now that it's to the public attention, um, I think that the time we're a little bit too late. I personally am at the, the place of believing, but um, that we have to fight for these opportunities now for more inclusivity of founders and perspectives in the world to be able to design products and services like you were talking about before we got on the call, your dad using technology versus you versus potentially your child one day um, and being able to, to build products that are valuable to all different types of humans, not just one kind of person. Um, and so that is a drum that I will continue to beat in my life. And I hope that if one woman listens to this podcast or one person who doesn't look like the traditional type of founder that we see in a Forbes magazine or on a cover, um, that maybe one person thinks that or now sees the value in what they know and what their human lived experience has been, and that maybe they'll think about building something of their own for the good of people on the planet. That's, that's my big passion. Honestly, wonderful way to end. Where can people find you, the company, your projects, um, or any info if they want to learn more or connect? Great question. So I am, uh, you can find me on TikTok at RealAJB. Uh, and then you can also find me on Instagram at Ali.Burger. And I think we'll have the spelling of my name here somewhere. People yeah, I'll have all the, all the info and all the links for sure. Beautiful. And um, we are actually, so Evan is getting a sneak peek of Etta because we're in Ooh. stealth mode until the fall for holiday shopping season. So if you're interested in being one of our, our first 2000 folks on the platform, um, you can go on to heyetta.com and sign up for a wait list. Uh, and we'll be bringing folks in to test out the product into our discord community. It's invite only at this point in time. Um, so if you want to be considered, feel free to apply. I think there's a lot of people that have problems that you and your company can solve, me being one of them. So, <laughs> so thank you so much, Ali. This is wonderful. I appreciate, I'm grateful, I'm thankful for your time and energy and, and all the wealth of wisdom that you shared with us today. Um, thank you so much. This was great. And uh, we'll say goodbye. Thank you to the audience. Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks, Evan.